Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the Voice of the Cape. This is Question and Answer Forum. I'm Khawa Solomon and we're chatting to at least we have uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Wass answering your questions via SMS on 47913. We uh, do appreciate your patience as we go through the SMSs that is received from the previous weeks, but please do keep them coming as we will deal with them as they come in. Assalamu alaikum to you, Sheikh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and to all our listeners of the Voice of the Cape. All right, so let's get straight into it. Salam Sheikh. Can my wife, I'm sorry, gave my wife three divorces, was very angry. At the time, we, uh, very angry at the time, we're still together. What must I do now? Shukran. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. It seems that uh, there's an, a notion out there that, uh, you know, a person who gives a divorce while he's angry, that it seems that he wants pity afterwards to say that I didn't mean it because I was angry. Okay. Uh, well, it, it's quite uh, it's quite uh, difficult to accept that excuse uh, simply because uh, I think when somebody gives a divorce, there's always going to be some level of anger in him. I don't think anybody's going to be very happy to give a divorce. Okay. Many men, I think, they uh, run away with the idea that because I was angry, the divorce must not be valid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that is not an excuse that is accepted by any of the scholars, uh, except there are some scholars that say that, look, if your anger was so bad that it actually made you not distinguish between right and wrong, and your anger totally uh, took your mind away, you know. Almost insanity. Almost like becoming insane for that moment. If it was that type of anger, then there are some scholars, like the, the Hanafi madhab and the Hanbali madhab, they give some rulings on that that say that if that was the level of anger, then maybe we can consider it but in a normal sense when a person is angry and he gives a divorce because of you know he's angry and so on mm-hmm. that does not make it uh, justifiable to say that the, the divorce is not valid okay so I believe I do believe that in most cases where husbands do give divorce and they are angry the divorce is valid there's no way we can say it's not valid because you should know that your anger should never drive you to to those words and to actually utter the words of divorce, etc. Mm-hmm. There is the issue, of course, here of giving three divorces, which is, I suppose, it's done case, yeah. in all uh, in, all in one sitting. Yeah. You know, and if that was done, then maybe this person may consult with one of the, the judicial bodies, mm-hmm. and he will they will they will give him some kind of uh, directives as to what should be done now. Okay, because there is an issue now whether three divorces which are issued in one sitting should be actually considered as three, or should it be considered as one that is merely emphasised. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they are like I said before on previous shows, the majority of scholars would regard three like this to be three. Hmm. That's a majority view. But there are some minority view, some individual scholars that have taken it to be one divorce instead of three. And the, the, the judiciaries sometimes take this into consideration. They look at the circumstances and they give a ruling like that. Okay, So I would advise that this person should go to the judiciaries, whatever judicial body, and explain himself. Mm-hmm. Because clearly, I mean, he divorced his wife. I mean, there's no way that we can say he did not divorce his wife. The anger is not justifiable. Okay, He divorced his wife. The only issue here is now, are we going to consider it to be three divorces, or are we going to consider it as a single divorce? Okay, okay? And it's very important for him to get clarity on this, because he's living with this woman now, mm-hmm. and it may be that he's living with her while she is not 
not lawful for him, right? So he needs to find out about that at one of the judiciaries, and hopefully they will be able to give him a verdict that will clarify the matter. Inshallah. So that must be done ASAP. ASAP, as quick as he can, yes. Shukran, Sheikh. Salam, what must I do if uh, my daughter does not want to make salah, she is married, nor she or her husband wants to salah, try talking now, they get cross. Uh, no example to their children. Salam. Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim I can uh, perhaps just quote a verse of the Quran which would sort of put us into perspective as far as this is concerned. Mm-hmm. And this verse is in Surah Taha. Surah Taha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim وَأْمُرْ أَهْلَكَ بِالصَّلَاةِ وَاسْطَبِرْ عَلَيْهَا لَا نَسْأَلُكَ رِزْقًا in this verse, Allah Ta'ala tells us, and He says, that command your family with a salah. And here, the commandment is general. A person who has a family, who is overlooking and overseeing a family, they must command their family with a salah. And then, interestingly, Allah Ta'ala says here, and have extreme patience when doing so. Okay? And the word, even from the Arabic perspective, if you look at it, Allah uses the word istabir. Now, istabir is like the intensive form of the word sabr. Normally, the normal word would be isbir. Isbir means to have patience. But istabir, it's like Allah Ta'ala is saying, have an intensive form of patience when doing so. As if Allah is alluding in this ayah that you are going to have challenges mm-hmm. with your family in trying to convince them to make salah. There are going to be times when they are going to rebel. There are going to be times that they are not going to be interested. Mm-hmm. But what is your duty as a parent? Your duty as a parent is to continue with that calling, to continue with that mission, and not to give up, right? Even though they are not listening, even though they are not showing interest. Like in this case, she's saying that the daughter is already married, but yet they don't want to make salah. Now, of course, she must continue talking to her in a, in a nice way and convince her and tell her that the benefits of salah and tell her what bad things will happen, I mean, to us in our lives if we don't show our gratitude to Allah via our salah. Lots of balas may come down on our families and remind her of these possibilities that may occur. Okay, So her mission is obviously to continue with this and not to, to get tired of calling her daughter and her son-in-law and the extended family, the grandchildren, to always make salah in front of them, for example, when they come there, mm-hmm. to make it a point that, let's say they're all sitting and they're sitting around the table or they're watching TV and the waqt comes in to actually switch off the TV mm-hmm. to show them that in this house, when the adhan goes off, we have respect and we switch off and we mm-hmm. prepare ourselves to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is very, very important and uh, uh, they should continue, she should continue to do that. That is a lifelong mission. It is not something that we can just give up. And then there's one thing I want to just add here. What happens is she's saying that the daughter is already now married and she doesn't want to make salah. Mm. Okay. Most likely, I don't want to say that this is the case here, but most likely this was something maybe that was not inculcated when the child was at a younger age because we find a child that from a young age already becomes uh, sort of used to making salah and and sees everybody else make salah Mm. it's very much easier for such a child to make salah in the future that's why the prophet precisely said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam muru abna'akum bisalati wa hum abna'u sabah the prophet particularly said that instruct your children to make salah when they are at the age of seven Mm. that is when you start and yeah, I always say it's not about instructing them. Mm. It's actually by showing them, by making salah with them. And it is amazing. I mean, I've got a small, uh, you know, I've got a son of five years old. And I remember when he was, you know, at the age of 
maybe two already, mm. he would actually come and join because mm. he wants to do what his parents is doing. Mm. He wants to be part of that movement. He would bring his own little musalla and wants to make salah there. The point is that whatever they see, they will get used to. Mm. Okay. Now, what I want to say is, I'm not saying that this woman didn't do this. Maybe she did and the child still doesn't want to make salah when they are adults. What I want to say to parents out there is try to inculcate the love for salah from a very young age by performing it in front of your kids, by being consistent on it. By not, you know, doing it sometimes and not doing it sometimes, mm. but being consistent in it. And in that way, the child will grow up with that in her mind and in, in, in the child's heart, that that child will, will not think of it as being a burden or being difficult or not wanting to do it. They will naturally follow suit. But for now, all that we can say is that the person must obviously continue calling their uh, a daughter and son-in-law and extended family to make that salah in whatever way she possibly can do that. Shukran, Sheikh. And for now, let's just break as we continue with your SMSs on 47913 after this uh, short intermission back in a moment. The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is The Voice of the Cape. I'm Kawa Solomon on 91.3 as well as out in the boil on 95.8, 90.9 and 80. 89.8 across the Atlantic seaboard. We are in our program called Questions and Answer Forum where we have Sheikh Ibrahim Moers giving us an intense answer to your question um, via SMS on 47913. So to continue with the SMSs, for the next one is Salam Sheikh. Is there a kaldaan for sunnah salah? If you overslept for fajr, is there a sunnah kaldaan? Yeah, of course it is permissible to perform the sunnah of fajr, for example, that a person misses to perform it afterwards. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and we find that there is actually precedent for this in the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There was one incident that Umm Salama radiallahu anha narrates to us that she says that لما شغل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عن الركعتين بعد الظهر صلاهما بعد العصر that there was one occasion where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was occupied after the salah of dhuhr and he did not perform his two rak'ah sunnah that comes after dhuhr because somebody kept him busy with something. So after Asr Salah, he made Asr finish, and after Asr Salah, he realized that he didn't perform the two rak'ah sunnah that comes after Dhuhr, and he actually did those rak'ahs after Asr. He, may, he paid it in, in other words. Now, of course, it is, sun, it is not fart, it is not compulsory to do that, mm. because the sunnah salah remains optional, it remains voluntary, but it is permissible for you to pay it in if you missed it. And here, particularly, the questioner is asking about the Salah of Fajr, Right now, the Salah of Fajr, the Sunnah Salah of Fajr, is the most important Sunnah Salah of the entire day. Okay, out of all the Sunnah Salahs, it is the one which the Prophet was the most particular on, which he never left out, which he spoke highly about. Okay, which he recommended in all circumstances. He never, even on travel, he never used to leave off the two rak'ah Sunnah that come before Fajr. Okay, and there's a hadith that says that these two rak'ahs that are done before Fajr, the Nabi says, خَيْرٌ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا وَمَا فِيهَا It's actually better than the whole dunya and what is in it, if one only recognizes the benefit which is placed in those rak'ahs. So, of course, for just to, to, to conclude on this question, that the person who wanted to make a sunnah salah at a later stage where they missed it out for a previous salah, it is permissible for them to do that and to actually pay it in. Although it is obviously not uh, obligatory to do so, it will be acceptable and rewardable to actually make qada'an 
of the Sunnah Salahs as well. Shesh, just a question for me that has come up now with the example that Sheikh used uh, as a practice with the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that has done, and that is making it after Asr Salah. And it was, I don't know if I speak under correction, but it was taught to us that making any Salahs uh, certain times of the day is, you know, makru, it's not permissible. Would that not be, um, is, was that one of the stipulated times that it is makru after, is it after Asr? It was sometime in the mid, I don't know, I speak under correction. Yeah, you no, no, you are absolutely correct. That, that is one of the times that it is not permissible to make sunnah salahs after asr and in fact the other time is after fajr <laughs> which okay. i also mentioned that you can make the sunnah salah of fajr after fajr okay that is permissible okay. so in normal circumstances yes you are not allowed to make salah during those times and if it is especially if it is a salah that has no particular reason hmm. and that is always what we mentioned it must have it must uh, it's only not permissible if it is a salah that is just hmm. general without okay. no specific reason okay. in this case there is a specific reason and that is that it is a sunnah that is attached to a fard salah so it has a reason uh, the same could be said for example if a person comes into the masjid and this is a question that comes up all the time person comes into the masjid either after fajr or after asr hmm. so does he make sunnah salah or doesn't he because that is the time normally that you don't make sunnah and the answer, after the, the fajr salah has been made is, or yes or after the, the fajr farad. salah is made okay. because farad. between uh, after the fard salah has been made up until sunrise obviously there's yes, no salah can. there's yeah. no sunnah salah mm-hmm. and after asr until maghrib there's no sunnah no salah sunnah. so the person enters the masjid must he make tahiyatul masjid or must he not and here there is dispute amongst uh, the jurists and the fuqaha. The Shafi'i Madhab states that uh, since this salah has a specific reason, right, and that is to greet the masjid, mm-hmm. there is no problem at all to make the sunnah salah, even if it falls within those prohibited times, which, which we are not allowed to make salah in those times. Okay, so just to say again that the fajr salah, now normally after fajr up until sunrise, we are not allowed to make sunnah salahs. Mm. Here we refer to sunnah salahs that have no reason. Like just say, let's say somebody just wants to make a two rakah sunnah just for the sake of Allah. Okay. A nafal salah. You're not allowed to do that after fajr. You must wait till the sun comes up. The same goes for after asr. You must wait till the sun, the, the, the sun sets. Right? Still after maghrib. Before you make those sunnah salahs that are general, that have no specific reason. The moment it carries a specific intention and a specific reason. And here the Shafis are even more sort of technical about it. They say that the reason for the salah must precede the salah itself. The reason must not come after the salah. Hmm. Now you may ask, what salah do you make where the reason comes after the salah? Do you get such a salah? The answer is yes. Like for example, the salah that a person makes, which is called salatul istikhara. Salatul istikhara is you make a salah for the reason that Allah must give you the right decision in the future. Hmm. In the future, the right thing must come your way. So that means that the reason for the salah comes after the actual salah. Now, this is a technicality. According to the Shafi'i Madhab, you are not allowed to make a sunnah salah during the prohibited times if the reason comes after the salah. But if the reason precedes the salah, then you can make a sunnah salah. Another uh, example of this would be the two rak'ahs that you make for ihram, when you don the clothing of ihram. Mm-hmm. Now, the question here is, do you first make the two rak'ahs sunnah or do you first don the ihram and make the niyyah? The answer is, you first make the sunnah rak'ahs and then you, don the, 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 and then you do the niyyah for ihram. Mm-hmm. Which means, this is another example where the sunnah salah comes first, then the reason comes afterwards. Now, according to the Shafi's, you're not allowed to do that if it is in the prohibited times. Mm. Okay, You can only make a sunnah salah where the reason precedes the salah. 
like tahiyatul masjid, like hudu. Notice, you first take hudu, then you make salah. Mm. So the reason precedes it. So in that case, you can make a sunnah salah that where the reason precedes it, even if it is in the prohibited times. But the moment that the reason is after the salah, then you are not allowed to make it also according to the Shafi'i school of thought. Uh, shukran, Sheikh, for some fiqh rulings there and guidance, alhamdulillah. Uh, we need to pay the bills, so stay with us. We continue with your questions just after this short break. Live from Cape Town, this is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We continue with your SMSs received on 47913. Please do keep them coming. We uh, appreciate your patience. Um, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim was, uh, takes us through all of your questions received, uh, but delayed from, from last week, but we nevertheless deal with them as they come in. Assalamu alaikum. I have just embraced Islam and I want to get married, but my divorce of my previous marriage is not yet final. Um, is it against the Muslim law if my boy a friend wants to get married. I don't know if I got that right, yeah. <laughs> Probably my boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, uh, the issue here is with regards to this woman that was in a previous marriage and of course now having embraced Islam and wanting to marry a Muslim man. Uh, the issue here is that the moment that she obviously embraced Islam, then it means that a husband of this previous marriage mm. will have to now obviously decide what he wants to do. Okay, this is what the Islamic law states. So she obviously, she can't get married immediately to someone else. Mm. She first needs to see what is going to happen with her previous marriage. Okay. Now, in this case, if the husband who is now in this marriage with this woman that became Muslim, he will be given a chance to decide what he wants to do. Okay. And that period that is given is normally the idda period or the waiting mm. period. So in other words, the moment that she embraced Islam, she will go under an idda or a waiting period, which is approximately three months. Even though no divorce took place, nothing took place, she will physically go under idda simply because in Islam, a non-Muslim woman, uh, sorry, a Muslim woman is not allowed to be in a marriage with a non-Muslim man. Okay. Okay. There is no way that a Muslim woman can be in a marriage with a non-Muslim man. Mm. There is no circumstance that allows that. Mm. Okay. So since she has now found herself in the situation where she is in a marriage where she is Muslim and the husband is not, mm. what would happen here is that she would have to wait, go under idda period immediately when she embraced Islam. Okay. And during that idda period, we will actually then give the husband a chance to figure out what he wants to do. Mm. It may just well be that he also wants to embrace Islam. And this is interesting. If this happens, if he embraces Islam within this Idda period, then in this case they don't have to renew their marriage. Their marriage is still intact. Even though they got married as non-Muslims. Because Islam will recognize the fact that they were married. So if both of them embrace Islam like that, the marriage will be intact. They don't have to remarry each other. Okay. Yeah. On the other hand, if he does not embrace Islam within that Idda period, then it simply means that he's not interested. And once the Idda period is over, then she is technically, she is allowed to carry on with her life and to marry someone else. Mm -hmm. But in this case, there's just another dimension. And that is, she says that she's ma married uh, uh, on court, on the court as well. Is that what she said? Um, she said she's um, Muslim law and embraces. Oh, it doesn't women. mention that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mention anything. She says she wants to know the, what's the rights what's against the Muslim law. Yeah, I would say that uh, minimal, she will have to wait, obviously, the Idda period which is a minimal of uh, three months. 
Okay, and within that three months, and it appears that there is uh, a procedures for divorce that is already underway. There is procedures for divorce. So if the procedures for divorce is underway, she will have to at least wait for the Idda period to be over, which is the th- this three months. And if it is over, then of course uh, she can get married uh, to uh, this uh, new husband of hers. But I would advise her rather to wait for the finality of the divorce in any case. Because there seems to be procedures of divorce that have already been initiated, maybe from the husband's side, whatever the case may be. It would be better for her to wait for those procedures to actually be concluded. Because okay, okay. those, um, it says a previous marriage is not final yet, and some of them d- d- does take quite long. Yeah. So that's why I said technically she can get married. Yeah. Because once her idda is over, she can get married, according to Islamic rights. Mm. Okay. But of course, just for technicalities of the law of the land and being married with someone else and stuff like that, mm. it may be complicated. Especially for the woman. Yeah. Yes, it may be complicated that she's still, the, the, the divorce is not final yet and stuff like that from a civil point of view. Yeah. Married, so yeah. it may be a problematic issue. Mm. So we will definitely advise her. The best is rather to have a little bit of patience mm. and conclude your marriage completely with your previous husband. Uh, by, by by the finality of the divorce mm. and when that happens then you are able then to obviously marry this new husband of yours who is also Muslim. Shukran so much Sheikh for um, that answer. Uh, let's move on. Salam Sheikh, my parents passed away. Can I still leave their photos on the wall? Bismillah rahman rahim uh, the issue of uh, photography and whether it is permissible to take photos of people and so on. This has been an issue in modern times that obviously has come up quite a bit and so on. And uh, uh, it's something which I think we, which we, there's no way that we can avoid it because it's uh, part of our lifestyle nowadays. I mean, uh, there's no way phones your phones, your ID books, your uh, passports mm-hmm. and all of that. So it's, it's an issue that obviously cannot be avoided, like I said. And most of the scholars in modern times seems to have gone to the opinion to say that it is permissible to have photographs and so on. As long as it is not photographs that is going to reveal the aura of people and that is, uh, you know, vulgar and stuff like that, as long as it is not in that way, then there should not be any problem. And in this particular regard, I just want to, uh, and I don't want to go into the length of the debate and all the discussions around it, but I would just like to quote a a particular scholar by the name of Dr. Wahaba Zuhaili. He's a leading Muslim scholar of Damascus, Syria. He lectures at the University of Damascus. He's one of the leading scholars in fiqh and Islamic law, written many, many, many books on Islamic law, etc. And his opinion is that, uh, you know, photographs is permissible, uh, even if you use them to, to, you know, of people to hang on your halls and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong in it because it is a modern invention which uh, obviously can uh, be looked at as being suitable for usage and stuff like that and he seems to give uh, the green light for this kind of thing Um, as long he also puts that uh, condition in as long as it is not photographs that reveal the aura of people and that are uh, out of line or or that are unsuitable people and many times I think people they when they have the picture of their mother or father on the wall at least it reminds them about them they make dua for them you know at least mm-hmm. it's a, a way in which they don't forget the goodness of their parents and they always feel that appreciation of what the parents have done for them and stuff like that uh, and if it is for that purpose I suppose there is there's, there's nothing wrong with it according to this scholar in any case according to Dr. Wahaba Zuhaili there's nothing wrong with it and there's many other scholars who had also agreed with him on this particular viewpoint because it is the 
easier. Another scholar, Dr. Yusuf Al-Qaradawi, for example, also have similar sort of positive uh, outlooks on these modern interventions such as photographs, etc. Uh, and so if it is used in the proper way, I don't think there, sh there should be major uh, objections against it in terms of, of the Islamic law. However, I also would like to conclude by saying if you have people that have a different view, you may have within your family people that don't like it, you know, and I think we should allow for that because mm. there is a difference of opinion. You may find certain people they are more comfortable not having photos mm. uh, in their homes or from themselves or their family, etc. And we should allow that. We should not look at them as being uh, backward or as, as being unnecessary. Mm. If that is their viewpoint, let it be. You know, allow for that difference of opinion because it is in fact something which the scholars have differed about. There are some strict views and there are some views that are not so strict about it. Uh, so uh, I chose to follow the more lenient opinion here because since it is something that we cannot avoid, like I said, it's something that our, our lives have become so, become so much used to. And that is why I am more inclined in following the easier position on this particular uh, issue as long as we are tolerant towards other people who have a different view on the matter. Uh, shukran, Sheikh. Salam. Sheikh Kana has been talaq his wife without telling her, but she then hears from his friends saying that he had uh, talaq her. Also, they married in court. What can she do? Yeah, of course, the, the, the husband may divorce his wife directly or indirectly. Directly meaning speak to her directly and say that she's divorced. Or he may send the divorce with someone or send the news with someone. Okay. That is obviously permissible. Uh, although uh, the ideal is never to do it indirectly. The ideal is to sit with the wife and to try to work out things. And yes, if divorce is then still given, that it is done straightforwardly uh, in front of her so that she knows what is going on, uh, etc. Um, so what I would advise here is is obviously this woman she first needs to verify whether this actually happened okay. she cannot just take what the friends are saying mm. okay because many times there's rumors about these things that that, that, that go around and maybe it's not even true mm. okay and maybe they don't even understand what what constitutes divorce the friends may think that it was a divorce and maybe it wasn't right because the wording and all of that will have an impact okay he may have said to his friends for example something like you know I'm uh, so tired of my wife or, you know, I wish my wife can uh, go, go to a mother. Uh, or I wish my wife wasn't there. You know, you may say things like this. This doesn't mean that automatically it constitutes divorce. Mm. Because those wordings have to first be looked at. And what did the person mean by it? It's not clear. It's uh, uh, implicit. How do we interpret it? Etc. So my advice is that she first should go to the husband directly, I think. Confront him and say, look, I've heard that you are saying things about divorce and so on. Is it true? And uh, can we sit down and work out and what you want uh, in this marriage? And if you really want to, to divorce me, let's do it straightforwardly so that at least I know where I'm standing and you will know that you've done the proper thing. And this is uh, what they should do. And I think it is always good. It's always advisable when we have somebody uh, that can arbitrate and that can also lead the process and guide the process, especially if it is somebody that is learned and that is uh, uh, well informed about the issues of talaq and divorce and this. Because many times people also do things and they do it in ignorance mm. so they don't really know what they are doing they don't know what the consequences are of the actions so we always advise in this case that there be a party that can sit with them and also listen to the two sides and then work out a way forward whether that divorce was in fact valid or not or whether they still want to give a divorce in the future all of that uh, must be I think guided by a person who knows the ins and outs of marriage and divorce that can give them the proper knowledge 
at hand uh, at the time when they actually need uh, to to have uh, access to that knowledge in uh, figuring out a way forward mm. in solving the issues that they have. Shukran, Sheikh. It's not just something that comes up for me, though, with regards to when the actual word um, was given or the message um, with regards to her now going under Ida. So should she take her Ida period to when she has confirmed it with her husband or when the husband had given the message, for instance, and when she heard it? So what is actually valid? Yeah, normally the Ida of a woman will become effective from the time that the divorce was issued. Right. So in this case, if the husband, in fact, did divorce her, yeah. not in front of her, but in but front of his friends, yes. and from that point onwards, the idda will start. So he confirmed it, yes, I did, yeah. and then she will take it from there. Yeah, okay. but the idda won't start from the time of confirmation. The idda will start from the time when he uttered the when words. When he uttered it to his Absolutely. friends. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And I gave this example before. There's an extreme example that is mentioned in fiqh, that let's say a woman, her husband passes away, and she only gets the news five months later. Okay. Then in that case, the Idda is already over. Hmm. Because she went under Idda whether she knew or she didn't know. It doesn't hmm. matter. The Idda is effective from the time that the husband died. died. The same thing here. The uh, divorce will be effective from the time that the husband actually issued the divorce. Hmm. Whether she knows about it later, that doesn't matter. Okay. okay? So, uh, yes, she has to confirm. And if he confirms, then she needs to ask him when exactly did this happen? Hmm. Because I need to know now, obviously, my Idda and how to work it out and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, that is very important. Uh, but I think what is more important for me here is that they need to obviously verify these things. They need to sit together mm. so that they can together sort of work out and structure a, a plan what they can, what they want to do for the future of their of their married life. Yeah. Inshallah, shukran, Sheikh. Salams, Sheikh. My friend went for fasakh due to husband's infidelity. Her husband refuses to go forward for the appointment at the um, uh, judicial body, but she hopes by going they can reconcile. Because they've got two young kids at home still. Please advise Shukran for the informative program. Alhamdulillah. Um, this is always the, the, the sad part of a divorce or of a dispute within a marriage. It's always the kids, the children that, that, that is going to suffer and that is going to face the brunt of the decisions that their mothers and fathers are making. Uh, and yes, so we, we, we feel that uh, empathy with them. Uh, and, and here it seems that the wife is obviously quite considerate, you know, she wants to save the marriage mm -hmm. because of the kids and that is a good reason. I mean, we obviously always want to look out for the best environment for our children. I mean, we don't like our children to grow up in an environment where they're broken home or both parents are not around and stuff like mm -hmm. that because that child becomes scarred, you know, for, for their lives, the rest of their lives and so on. The point then here is that uh, it seems that the judicial body called this person in, but he did not yet respond. Okay. Now, what the, they would normally do, and this is something that she must play quickly, she mustn't uh, take a long time to figure out what to mm. do here, because what the judicial body would normally do, they would give the person a chance to respond, and if he does not respond, then obviously they will issue perhaps the fasakh in his absence. If there is grounds for Fasakh, of course, if mm. there is grounds for her to be separated from him. So what she should do immediately is that she should actually get into contact with him in one way or the other and convince him that we need to sit down and figure out whether we really want this or not. And clearly state to him, look, I don't want it because mm. I want to save this marriage if we can for the sake of our kids. They deserve a home where both parents are there, etc. Okay, uh, so obviously she needs to do this in whatever way she can and, and she needs to do it very quickly before the judicial body actually make their decision because, because once they make the decision, it may just be too late. 
because they may take it because what they do normally is if the person one of the parties don't rock up for the meetings then they almost take it like they're not interested you know or they are guilty or they you know whatever and yet it seems she's saying that the husband had some infidelity and stuff so maybe the husband is embarrassed to come or whatever the case may be the point is she wants to save a marriage so she needs to do whatever it takes now she needs to contact him they need to sit down and talk about the issues before a conclusion is reached at the ju- judicial body okay uh, so that is what what i can advise uh, her to do at this point in time to make that contact with him and explain to him you know say to him that look if we had our differences if you did certain things that were wrong i'm prepared to forgive you and i'm prepared to give it another chance as long as you show sincerity as long as you promise me you won't go down that route again you won't do things that are dishonest or that are uh, unsuitable for our marriage and i'm prepared to give you that chance uh, as long as you can promise me those things and i think with any with any situation like this uh, what i've seen is you know sitting with people that have this kind of problem many times when they have a decent conversation you know about the issues many times things uh, become much more clearer for them it's because they don't have the opportunity or they don't want to create the opportunity for themselves to speak to each other that is where things go wrong you know like they have shouting and swearing to each other and mm. they don't really speak and they don't really express themselves properly and that leads to perhaps one of the parties moving out or just making drastic decisions and we find in those situations because they didn't speak to each other there's no clarity they don't really know what each other want mm. you know what they want out of this thing but the moment you sit them down and you give each one a fair chance to speak their heart you know give the wife and the husband both a fair let's say 15 minutes you speak your heart whatever you want to say what are your grievances what are your issues what is what what are the things that you don't like what is your problems that you have within this marriage what is your expectations that you have within this marriage okay and you give them this opportunity many times you hear the other party said yes but why didn't you tell me this i mean if I, only i could know that then i would know how to react then the other party would say well you didn't give me a chance to tell you that because you were shouting and swearing now this is always the case communication if they don't have a good communication level then this is always what happens okay so this woman needs to get into contact with her husband as soon as she can and talk about the issues hopefully some clarity will come their way and they will be able to obviously uh, find a solution to their problem Inshallah, all the best for those that are uh, find themselves in very complicated situations. Uh, we do continue taking your SMSs and your questions on this question and answer forum. 47913, stay with us. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station. 91.3 FM and 95.8 FM stereo. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is the voice of the Cape Shukran so much for choosing us and we appreciate you staying with us in this very informative program as Sheikh Ibrahim was uh, takes your questions and gives a great a comprehensive answer to it as well. So shukran for being patient as we go through the backlog of our questions on 47913. We will deal with your questions, so please send them through. And it will be, if it's not dealt with today, inshallah, it will be dealt with in the following, in the next next week's show, inshallah. I mean, right, we continue with the SMSs. Salam, Sheikh and Khawa. My husband sits and salah. Can he lead me in salah? Shukran. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, Alhamdulillah, the Shafi'i Madhab is the most lenient when it comes to these matters as to who is able to lead and who is following that leader. Uh, we find that they allow all sorts of situations. 
whereby, for example, a person who is leading the salah may be sitting and the person standing behind may be standing. Mm. Of course, we need to make just a point here that the person who's sitting in the first place for the fart salah, he must have a valid reason for sitting. Because sitting in itself is not allowed if there is no reason. Mm. Okay, So this husband, if he's not ill, if there's nothing wrong with him, if there's no ailment or difficulty, then he has to stand. Because standing is part of the integrals of the salah. But if on the other hand, he cannot stand, he doesn't have the ability to stand, then obviously he can sit. And if he sits, nothing wrong for him to lead a jama'ah like that, where the people behind him are actually standing and he is sitting okay. okay then there's just one other point that i want to mention here is that if he is sitting and he is able to stand only for some time and not all the time then the sharia would dictate for him here that he stand as long as he can and then sit and why i say this is i find many people they misunderstand this question many times people that can't stand for a long time for example but they can't stand for some time you see them coming into the masjid and what they do is they go straight onto the chairs and they sit down and they start the salah like that sitting in a sitting position mm. and this is actually wrong if you are able to stand even if it is just for the duration of, of saying Allahu Akbar doing the takbiratul ihram then it is absolutely necessary for you to do that in other words you are not allowed to sit and do the takbiratul ihram while you are in a position to stand and do so then you, if you are the next level, if you are at the position to at least stand for, let's say, the Fatiha or half of the Fatiha, then you must stand while doing that before you actually sit down. So in other words, it's just not, uh, it's not just a, a, an automatic process where you come in the masjid and because you are sitting all the time, you immediately start your salah sitting and you sit all the time. That is not uh, actually permissible. You must stand as long as you can and as far as you can and as much as you can. Of course, if a person cannot stand at all, Right, he's got a back problem, he's got a knee problem, whatever his problem is, and he cannot at all stand, not even for one moment. And in such a case, it would be allowed for him to sit for the entire duration of the salah from beginning to end. There would be absolutely no difficulty as far as that is concerned. Okay, so just coming back to the question yes, it is allowed for the husband to lead her, even if he's sitting, if he has a valid reason to sit, he can sit and she can be standing behind him. That goes not only for a home situation, even in a masjid for that matter. An imam is able to sit and the ma'mum is standing. There's no problem in that. Shafi'i madhab allows all these kinds of situations because they look at the niyyah of the person himself making the salah. Mm. Your own intention is what is important. And that is why they allow even, just on another note, they allow a person to make a qada'an salah behind a person that is making a current salah. And they allow a person to make a fard salah behind a person who is making a sunnah salah. And this is interesting. The imam may even be making a sunnah. Right? Let's say, now this, uh, some people ask this. You come into the masjid, now you want to latch onto the imam or one of the brothers that are making salah, but you're now not sure whether he's making his fard or his sunnah. Can I just latch onto him or must I first wait and see if it is the fard or sunnah? In the Shafi'i madhab, it's absolutely easy. You just make your niyyah, you join him, whether he's making a fard or a sunnah, mm. you are allowed to follow him because your niyyah is what is important. So if your niyyah is a fard, then your salah will be valid based on your own niyyah, even if your imam's niyyah was something else. There's no problem in that at all. Okay, And that is why we find in the month of Ramadan, it is actually better for people that when they come into the masjid late for taraweeh, 
So what is better for them to make their own Isha and then to, to join up with the Jama'ah to make Taraweeh or just to join the Jama'ah who's making Taraweeh but make your Niyah for Isha'i and make okay. Isha'i actually behind Taraweeh. That would be actually the second option would be a better okay. option because then you're not disturbing anyone who's reciting. Because oh. what happens is what we find in the Masajid, if people come late for Salatul Taraweeh, then they make their own Salatul Isha. Then what this makes is that cause a lot of confusion for the person who is reading in front. Because okay. now he hears other voices reciting at the back and there's a lot of concentration needed when they recite Quran from memory. Hmm. So many times it may disturb them, they may get confused and stuff like that. What we say in this regard, if you come late for Isha, you simply make your niya for Isha standing behind the Imam that is making Taraweeh. This is completely permissible. Okay. And the moment he says, Assalamu alaikum, after these two, of course, you've got still another two to make. Mm. You simply stand up and you build the other two on. Yes. And then your, your Isha would be complete. And there is absolutely no worries as far as that is concerned. It is totally allowed in the Sharia of Islam. Well, then you get the reward um, for making in Jama'ah. Absolutely. Well. You get a full reward of making the Salah in Jama'ah, even if it was that you made a far Salah and the Imam was making a Sunnah in front of you, mm. because it is your niyyah that counts. Your niyyah was to make a fart and your niyyah was to get Jama'ah standing behind someone, and that is what you will be rewarded for, for the intention that you have made. Inshallah. Shukran, Sheikh. And let's just take a break in our next uh, segment. We've got some Mahram questions, so uh, more with that after the short break. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the voice of the Cape. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah once again for Sheikh Ibrahim Wurst uh, for affording us his expertise and uh, you know time away from family. We really appreciate it. As we find ourselves in the last segment of Question and Answer Forum on the Saturday afternoon evening uh, to continue with the SMS. Salam Sheikh, can I ask my children to accompany me for Umrah even if two of them are married? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, I'm not too sure what exactly yeah. is the intent of this question because there's the issue of Umrah and asking my children to accompany me. So the issue of obviously asking your children uh, that are married, here is a dynamic that needs to be explored. And that is obviously if they are married, it means they, are, they have spouses. Okay, so and if they have spouses, it means you cannot just demand for them to come with you yes. without the consent of the spouses, without the approval of the spouses. Or even if the spouses need to come with if they're maharims or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there's okay. a lot of dynamics there. Okay. okay. So the parent obviously must not uh, make those kinds of demands unless, uh, of course, they know that it's okay with the family, the mm. family won't mind and stuff like that. Because here, yeah, obviously, those who are married, they have their own responsibilities. I mean, if they're going to be away from home, there's responsibilities that needs to be seen to and all of that. Okay, so that is the first thing that, that needs to be uh, looked at. And I think another issue that needs to be looked at, which I read into this question, is the fact that if the parents tell the, the kids to come with an Umrah, Okay, there's obviously a financial issue here. Mm. And, uh, are the kids ready to go? I mean, are they financially Financial, stable yeah. to go oh. uh, and a able to go? Many times the parents may think they are, but maybe they're not. Maybe mm. they are under obligation for some other things. They've got debt to pay off. They've got cars. They've got this. They've got that. So many times uh, they don't want to maybe uh, upset the parents, but at the same time they know it is difficult for them. Okay, so I think the parents must ascertain all these things. Mm. Are you financially able um, to go? Because obviously, it's a lot of expenses that will go out, and uh, you, you have a family to look after, and this kind of thing, right? And in terms of the mahram issue, of course, she needs a mahram if she's going to go on umrah. Uh, and just underscore if it is the first time that she's going on umrah, okay, let's say it's the very first time that this mother is going to travel. 
then in this case, the Shafi'i Madhab actually allows her to go even without a mahram, if it is the first Umrah that she's performing. Because the Umrah is just as obligatory as the Hajj. Right? The Umrah is not Sunnah, okay. according to Imam Shafi'i. He considers both acts of ibadah to be an act which is compulsory. So if it is the first time traveling for Umrah and she wants to go, then she doesn't uh, technically need a mahram. Hmm. Of course, a mahram would be a first prize. But if she doesn't have a mahram, she is able to go without a mahram. But she must then go try and travel with other women that are at least comforting to her, that can help her, that can assist her. Because if a few women are together like that, then of course it makes it easier for them to help and assist and uh, stand by each other if any difficulties should come up. Okay. Uh, On the other hand, if it is a sunnah umrah, the second time, third time that she's going, then obviously there's no doubt that she does need a mahram. And if this mahram is now one of her sons that is married, then obviously she must ask him whether he can come and not demand from him, but ask him and say to him that, look, I need you to come with because, uh, you know, I am uh, wanting to go. I need a mahram. Can you assist me in this regard? So there's two issues. Is it okay with your family? Will you be able to look after your family while you are gone? Will they be okay in your absence? And secondly, uh, from a financial point, will you be able to afford to go with me? Right? Well, if it is where the first answer, the, the, the answer to the first question is that the family is okay, the family will be looked after, but I'm not financially able to go. And the mother then says, well, I will pay for you. Okay, I just want you mm. to come with me. I will pay for you. Then that is sorted. I mean, if the mother is willing to pay for his ticket and lodge, lodging and all of that, no problem. Then he can go with her uh, to, to be as a mahram. And in fact, if he's able to do that, it will be a great honor for him mm. right, to accompany his parents f- for, to go to Makkah. I mean, I've alhamdulillah had that opportunity to go with my parents. And it's a, it's a great honor to stand with your parents, you know, in front of the Kaaba to make tawaf. And if it's hajj, you know, to stand on Arafah with them and all of that. Mm. It is memories and it is something that live with you for the rest of your life. At least you had those opportunities. So uh, the children must look at it in that way as well. If they are going to do something which is going to please their parents in that way, to stand with them in front of the Kaaba, to travel with them, and they are able to manage it, then of course they must try to do that because there's a lot of blessings in such a decision to make a parent happy or to at least see to, uh, to assist the parent in, in this regard. And that is what, what they should uh, strive to do. And then unfortunately we have time for one last question and that being Assalamu alaikum. My niece's husband, is he mahram to me or not? Yeah, it uh, doesn't seem because the, obviously the niece would be obviously uh, you would then be the, the, the aunt, aunt of that particular uh, girl. But the, her husband has got no relationship with you. <laughs> she, there's no relationship of her husband towards you. Okay, in fact, uh, in the future, you may even get married to that person. As mm. far as I can see, there is no uh, mahram relationship between the two. So she, uh, this person, cannot act as your mahram. They cannot be for uh, with you for traveling purposes and stuff like that, because there's no relationship really between your niece's husband and you. Okay, mm. you are actually totally strange for each other. It is unlike your the in-laws, for example. It's unlike the other mahram relationships that are well known. Um, like your father-in-law, mother-in-law, that is always mahram relationship. Like, for example, your own brothers, sisters, and so on, aunts, uncles. Those are all mahram relationships. Uh, we can think that even your own cousin is not your own mahram. It's, it cannot be a mahram. Your own cousin, because your cousin is marriageable. Oh, yeah. you can marry, can get married to your own cousin. So this is even further away. I mean, this is your niece's husband, hmm. right? which is much further away than your own cousin. Uh, because even if you wanted to be technical about it, I mean, the, 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 the cousin in some way or the other in certain circumstances may still inherit from you if you die 
Mm. You know, let's say there's no other A's and you only leave behind cousins, they may inherit from you. Whereas this person who is now the husband of your niece, there's no relation. There's no way that this person will ever inherit from you or that have any relationship with you. So the quick answer is no, he is not a mahram and he cannot stand as a mahram for you in this regard. Sheikh, to add on to that, if it was her nephew, um, okay, not not in any sense of a husband or a wife, but if it was the aunt's her own nephew, nephew, her own nephew, absolutely, okay. nephew and aunt, because okay. nephew and aunt is unmarriageable; they can't yes. marry each other, oh. and they can even inherit inherit from each other, oh. depending which nephew it is. You okay. know, if it is from the father's side and mother's side, there's those those the dynamics, okay. those dynamics. But the point is, your own aunt, you know, is a mahram for you. Yeah. I mean, you you can be a mahram for your own aunt, whether it is your father's sisters or whether it be your your, your mother's sisters, okay. because that is absolutely unmarriageable kin. As for this, it is something else. Right? It's actually much uh, further away. Sheikh Maaf, I'm going to add on just a little bit, and it could be a bit of a bold and a beautiful story. But if it is what that this, that this niece had a son, and he was um, at a stage that, you know, uh, in any way, can this niece's son be the um, mahram? Yeah, if it is the niece's son, it would appear then that it is, uh, he's going to be standing mahram for his, let's say, his great auntie. Yes. His, big auntie. his big auntie. So that is still his aunt. I mean, okay. it's still considered his aunt. It's just like the grandparents and great grandparents and everything that goes up, right? Now, aunts is also like that. So, in other words, my father's sisters would be my aunts, right? And my grandfather's sisters would be my big aunts. Great, okay. My great aunts. And they are also mahram. I okay. mean, great aunts are also mahram relationship. The issue here is with the spouse. With the spouse. Because the He's spouse is, not is foreign and strange. Yeah. Not no, related by blood n- at all. Not related by blood at all, at all. Okay. Jazakallah, Sheikh, for that twist in questions and being able to answer us. We really appreciate it. And inshallah, we hope Sheikh has salama travel and is back with us next week in the same form, inshallah, all fit and well to continue answering the questions that is received by our listeners, inshallah. So Jazakallah to you, Sheikh. Jazakallah khairan to you also, Sister Hawa, and may you also go well. And to all our listeners, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, from myself, Khawasanun, be safe on the road and have a good weekend. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and a very good day.